0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here, and we love to tell your stories, too, and this one got sent to us along by a listener, and this is just one of those great stories about our country, its character, and you don't hear enough of these stories, and, well, we wanted to bring it to you, and joining us to tell his story is Chris Williams, and he lives in Conroe, Texas, 45 minutes north of the city of Houston, and Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you, good to be here. and Chris, before we talk about what brought your story to our attention, tell us a little bit about your life, where you were born, your parents uh, what were what were the important things to them, and uh, just a bit about your early life.
1: I was born and raised in Louisiana, actually sixty miles south of New Orleans, in a place called Point hash, and um, you know my my parents were people that just kind of helped people. They went out of their way to help people, and so we could be dressed up to go somewhere, go to church, whatever, and if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, my dad would stop and try to, to help them uh, fix the car or or get to where they needed to go.
0: And so they were just, in the end, you were watching their generosity in action pretty much most of your life.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, we, we always had somebody living with us, and uh, I continued that tradition uh, with, with my family. Uh, we've always had, uh, exchange students and people that needed a place to stay living with us. And it's great now to see my, my girls are grown and they're continuing to do the same with, uh, with their family. So that's, that's amazing to me.
0: So giving it just become a part of your DNA. And, uh, let's talk about this thing that you just decided to start and what led to it. Talk about God's garage.
1: Well, God's Garage was was born in my little garage at the house, and I just wanted to be able to help people that, uh, that needed help with their cars and couldn't afford to, to get them repaired. Um, and and that was kind of born out of the, There were years where I couldn't afford parts for my cars, and I would just pray that the thing would run and get me to work and get me home every day. And I thought, man, one day I'm going to help people. And, and so that's what we did. We, we just started trying to help people out.
0: And transportation is the lifeblood for so many people and there's not a lot of help in that space. I mean, your car either runs or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, boy, you're in a world of hurting. So, Chris, sure. you, you start God's Garage. How do did, how did people start to find out about it? Do you remember your very first uh, your first person that you were able to bring help to and, and, and just help out in this endeavor? And then what happened next?
1: We, um, we helped a few people for, through word of mouth. Uh, but the, the big one came when... I was on my way home from church one Wednesday night. It was dark and raining hard, and I could barely make out a couple people walking on the side of the road. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if they'll get in the car with me and let me give them a ride. And they got in. Well, it was a single mother and her daughter, um, and they were uh, on the way to their house. And, and I said, what are you guys doing? What, why are you walking in the rain? And they said, well, the truck's in the shop. And as we talked, found out the truck had been in the shop for three months. And I said, "Why is the truck still in the shop?" And I was kind of getting mad at the mechanic for not releasing the car yet. And uh, she hung her head and said, "We can't afford to, to to fix it." And so that just broke my heart, and, and that really started us uh, in a in a, a sort of a sort of a more concerted effort to do more. And we built a shop at my uh, new house, uh, a forty by forty building, and we brought her truck in fixed her truck up and gave it back and that really started the ball rolling um there was uh there's been so many people that uh there's great stories that, that we've helped um and it's, it's just it's a blessing to me and to the guys that work with us to be able to do what we do blesses us as much as them
0: and how many people are you helping now how many tell, tell us about the, the shop um how many people are employed there uh and how many people you're you're helping at this point
1: Right now, we uh, have about 20 mechanics. Um, we are all volunteers. We have about 20 people on a cook team that uh, rotate and cook for us on the nights that we work. We usually, during the day, Monday through Friday, we have four, or five, sometimes six guys working all day. And then Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, we have up to a dozen guys working until 9 o'clock or so. Um, So we have a a lot of people helping out. We have a vetting team that goes through the applications. This year, we've given 41 cars away. So far, we're about to give about 10 more away before the end of the year. And next year, our, uh, our plans are to double that. We want to give away 100 cars next year. We've also repaired a bunch of cars as well. So we do the two things. We repair vehicles for single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military, and we give cars away to single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military.
0: And, you know, there's a, a quote that I just loved from you that I bumped across that said there was a time when you found yourself short on money and long on car troubles. And I guess yeah. in the end, that, that's an empathetic power you have in all these volunteers. And my goodness, these volunteers, they have jobs during the day, right?
1: Yeah, we have uh, everyone from teenagers after school to retirees to guys who are working full-time jobs and then come in at night and, and work at night. Uh, we have guys who do shift work, and when they're not on their shift, instead of being home and lazing around, they actually come and, and volunteer their time. It's a great thing.
0: And they feel better about it, too. I mean, this is the thing about giving. I mean, it's you know, you're know, you you're giving to other people, but what you're getting in return, uh, Chris, talk about that. Man, uh,
1: you know, we live in a selfish world uh, where we're bombarded with, with these uh, thoughts that you're number one and take care of yourself and put yourself first. And when we do that, Uh, When we have problems and situations that arise, uh, they tend to be all-consuming, and they take us over. Well, when we get outside of ourselves and we try to help somebody else, our problems diminish. Uh, They're not so big anymore. And it's funny, you know, when we help other people, sometimes the things that we say to them and the things that we do for them uh, leads to some some changes in our own lives. And and what I just told that person that they needed to do, gee, I kind of need to do that, too. Uh, so it's 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 a a great thing for you to be able to refocus your energies in your life on on others instead of just on yourself.
0: Well, hold that thought, Chris. When we come back, I want to talk about two particular stories, and then I want to share with the folks where they can go to help you and what you do. And that's www.godsgaragecar.com. www.godsgaragecar.com. And when we come back. More with Chris Williams of God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, and that's just 45 minutes north of Houston. His story, and my goodness, this is so many American stories. We're a good country, and we're a caring country. These stories here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to the story of Chris Williams. And this is just a great generosity story. It's a great American story. And God's Garage in Conroe, Texas is what he started. And it started with just an idea. I want to help people. And this is a space where people really need help. And not enough people are hitting this space. And it's transportation. And not everybody lives in a big city where you can get on a bus and actually get where you need to go. The car is such a fundamental part of our lives. And without a reliable one, boy, life can get tough. And we heard Chris tell a story about that single mom and her daughter whose truck had been in a shop for three months. And she was it sounded, Chris, it, like she was ashamed to admit that it had been there. And it sounded like you almost had to get that out of her. And there's a lot of shame involved in this, isn't there, Chris?
1: There is. Uh, when When you don't have reliable transportation... You go through the normal channels. You start with your family. Hey, can I, can I borrow a ride? Can you take me here or there? Um, after a while, they get pretty exhausted helping you out. And so you, you turn to your friends. And after a while, they get tired as well. So when we are able to repair a car for someone or, or give them a car, we're not just giving them transportation. We're restoring dignity and, and giving them uh, a, a new independence with respect. They can take care of uh, their their needs without begging and borrowing. And so it's a, it's a big life change for a lot of these ladies that we help.
0: Indeed. And let's talk about a few stories in particular. Tell us about Susan and her special needs daughter.
1: Man, Susan... Uh, she came to us, uh, she filled out an application and and we brought her out and we actually had a news crew from a local television station come out and we we wanted to interview her as part of the process and so we did so and showed her the garage. Well, what she didn't know is that we actually had the vehicle ready to give her and so we gave it to her on on live TV. Um fast forward uh, the gentleman, the, the reporter that did the story came back to me and he said, I've never done this. I've never gone back and, and done a follow-up on my stories in all of these years, but I'll, can I can I follow up? And I said, sure. Well, he had interviewed Susan at the, the onset before we gave her the car, um, met her daughter, and spent a little bit of time with her. When he went back to interview her, he he actually spent the day with her. He came straight from that interview to me and he said, do you understand what's happened with this lady? And I said, well, she's, uh, she's volunteering now at the garage. She's helping out with things, and, uh, yeah, she's, she's got freedom and, and independence. He says, no, you don't understand the change that has been made in this lady. I interviewed her. I'm a good judge of people, and she wasn't faking. She's a different person now. She has purpose. She has a sense of direction. She's telling everybody that she knows about the garage and what it can do for people. And she's, she's you guys are biggest fans, but she's a different person. And so that just warms my heart uh, to just see the change in people.
0: Indeed. And, you know, one of the great pastors in this country in the 20th century is Rick Warren, and his book was The Purpose Driven Life. And for so many people, when you don't have that purpose, Chris, that's how we can get lost. Talk about another story. Lisa from the Salvation Army Shelter. Tell her story for us.
1: Lisa filled out an application, and uh, we vetted we her. We talked to her on the phone. And... She came out. We were able to give her a car. But her story is uh, is something that you don't normally hear, uh, but that happens frequently. She is a uh, degreed, college-educated lady, succinct, articulate, well-dressed, uh, well-put-together. She came down for a job in Houston at a hotel chain. The hotel put her up in, in a suite and um, provided for her car and and necessities, and she was doing very well running the hotel uh, until the hotel was sold. And the new owners came in and fired everyone and said they were starting with their own people. So she found herself not only without a job, but without a place to live. Uh, after uh, a few weeks had gone by and she'd stayed with friends and and, uh, run out of places to stay, she found herself in the Salvation Army. She ended up losing her car as she scrambled to find a new job. What a situation to find herself in after doing the things that we're supposed to do. She went to college. She got good grades. She she went after a career in, in hotel management and found herself in a shelter. And she said, "I never thought i 'd find myself here. We gave her a car she 's been able to get a, a new job, uh, a new lease on life, and she 's flourishing uh, again this is this is a life change for people it's not it 's not a handout uh, it's it 's just a help out and so what a what a blessing to do this.
0: Yeah, and we forget all of us who have that help readily available through social capital, through family, through a church, through a network." Um, we, I think many of us take that for granted, Chris. Talk about faith, and it's God's garage, obviously. But talk about the faith of the volunteers, you. What part did faith play in this?
1: Well, it was a, uh, it was a big deal for me to, at the, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, to say, I'm going to go work full-time at this garage where there's no money. <laughs> where there's no salary, there's no paycheck. But I, we felt like God was orchestrating this, and, and this was the time, and so we stepped out there. Uh, we call it God's garage because it's His; it's, it's uh, His blessings that we're just stewarding. Uh, it's not ours. It's not. It's not Chris's workshop. Um, so all of the, uh, the 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 glory, if you will, goes to God. Um, the kudos goes to God, not to us. And and then as well, all of the uh, provisions they have to come from God. Uh, we can't conjure up the money uh, ourselves, and, and so He provides that as well. So, yeah, faith is a, is a major thing for us. We, uh, we want to present our lives as a, uh, a testimony of, of how God's working through situations in our lives and what's going on, and so the guys that work with us, we develop relationships with and we're able to, to minister to each other. The ladies that we help, we're able to minister to. Um, so faith is a, a major part of this.
0: Yeah, you've got, in the essence, a head and body shop, a gear shop, a bunch of gear guys have a ministry, Chris. Yes, yes. It's just beautiful. And tell me this, what, what was your family's reaction when you said, this is where the Lord's calling me, because that's how so many Christians talk to their family. This is where he wants me to go. And I've, I've heard some things like that from friends, and I go, are you sure that's what he wears? <laughs> are you sure that's where he wants you to yeah. go?
1: You know, my family was great because we've led a, a faith-led life, um, and my wife uh, thankfully has a, a good job. Uh, so she was on board and, and said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, leave your great paycheck behind. Uh, and I was doing ministry. I was I was pastoring, been pastoring for years. Um, so it's not like I was... Uh, Trying to to get out of a secular position, if you will, and get into a religious position or anything like that, uh, but this was what we were supposed to do, so we went for it. Uh, most of my friends are very supportive. They've seen God uh, in action in my life and realize that uh, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm following God's leading here, that that it must be okay. It's going to work out. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that are kind of, you're doing what for, and you don't get paid. How's that work? <laughs> so we. We've made adjustments, and, and we're doing what we need to do to make it work, um, but again, what, I mean I can't explain to you how great the blessing is to do what we get to do to work with the guys that that are selfless and volunteering and I'll tell you almost all of our volunteers not only give a, a lot of their time, they give financially as well, uh, and it just tells you how how amazing this ministry is
0: and that is that is an amazing story you're looking to give away. 100 cars next year and that's on yeah. top of the countless repairs you do uh, for all the folks in need and please if you want to give or you want to learn more go to www.godsgaragecar.com that's godsgaragecar.com and a final thought Chris for folks who are on the fence that they feel like they are being called to do something and yeah they've got to have that Really awkward conversation with the wife, or the wife has to have that conversation with the father and the kids. Um, mm-hmm. Talk him off the fence if you can, Chris. I tell you, if if you
1: feel like you're supposed to do something that God, you feel like God's leading you to do it, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people, but you still feel so strongly about it, that's obviously God. Uh, we know that you're you're not going to go do something good uh because the the devil wants you to do it. <laughs> so, and if it and if it's if there's some uh some pushback on it, well, you know what? If I feel this strongly about it, then God must be in it and I'm just going to open or go through open doors where they're open. Um the other thing I, I do want to say is do something for someone else, no matter how small, no matter how big, do something for somebody else. Get together with another person or five other people and do something good for somebody. Uh, Because on our own, we can do some really cool things. But when we get together as a group, oh my gosh, we can accomplish so much. But don't hold back. Don't wait for the one day, if I win the lottery or if I do this or that. Do it now. Do something.
0: Indeed. And great words. And again, we're talking to Chris Williams. His story, God's Garage, not Chris's, God's. God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, about 45 minutes north of the great city of Houston. Chris Williams' story here is Our American Stories, and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the bizarre. Which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence, Jesse Edwards, with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old-school hacker. Take it away.
2: Not be completed as This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking. The son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard. If you'd
3: like to make a call, please hang up and try again.
2: Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring.
3: If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator.
2: And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper.
4: Well, my claim to fame is, comes out of a Cap'n Crunch whistle box. If you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it, that's 2600 hertz tone. That 2600 hertz tone is what controls the AT&T American telephone system. And it was developed way back in the 50s. Got started from this really, and I learned about the phone company system and the switching tones and I
2: got a Captain Crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a,
4: a, a, like a 5551212 a information number which is free, and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up, you're hanging up on a trunk level and you go a little ka sound and then if you want to dial two, you go one, three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls.
2: That's pretty impressive. In a time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the Blue Box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built a prototype of a Blue Box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked!
4: My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a Blue Box you can do it as an operator. You can call the other operators, you can call routing codes, you can tap phone lines, you can route calls all over the world by
2: you just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once a long-distance call had been initiated, and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle, or the blue box, had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration.
4: The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off hook, on hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton. And that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which stacks into Canton, and then Canton gives us the handshake.
2: While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um,
4: the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article There was actually this guy, Don Ballinger, who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me. And then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs. And Steve says, Let's build
2: them and make them and sell them. So that's what they did. In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business, was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology. Here's Steve Jobs. You could
5: you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles, uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So we actually, and these were Ill- illegal I, I have to add, uh, but in spite of that we were so fascinated by them that Waz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world, it was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And You know, you, you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it was, the, it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world.
2: But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end. John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because...
4: Somebody was using uh, Waz's flu box phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down, and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty, pretty safe even today, because I was very careful.
2: Captain Crunch ended up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud while serving a third prison sentence. Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it.
6: We're sorry. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial
2: again. But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers.
4: Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number. Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And, uh... There was a way to tap lines back then, so we sit in on the line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link. And uh, somebody said, Olympus, please. And the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon.
6: People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a
5: crook.
4: I wrote down Olympus. And two weeks later, I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, somebody had this really cool number. I wanted it. And phone freaks like to trade numbers. So I says, ah, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline of the White House? And he says, You got what? <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three ten, two or three trunks in there, calling the number. And he got uh, got him on the line. And uh, he said, uh, Sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. And he says, What's the nature of the crisis? He says, Sir, we're out of toilet paper. They hung up. <laughs> First instance of punking
2: uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and d- 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 dial again. And that's phone-freaking-extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you, as always, Jesse,
0: as odd and irreverent, as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story is Our American Stories, and we do every kind of conceivable story here on this show, from sports to the arts, from history to, well, we've done eulogies here on this show. They're so moving, and we call it Final Thoughts, and we've done uh, any number of them. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. And uh, a few weeks ago, we saw a headline in the Wall Street Journal, Great News for Pet Indulgers, The Cone of Shame Can Be a Pillow. And the cone, of course, they're referring to is that cone that we put around a pet's neck after a surgery. And in my particular case, as a young man, our pet dog, Bogie, used to chew on his tail and it got so bad, we had to put that cone of shame around him. And boy, it was uncomfortable. And in it, we bumped into a lady named Linda Markfield. And she works at all four paws in Santa Monica, California. And Linda, well, as always with Americans, we come up with great ways to solve problems. And, Linda, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: You know, Linda, before we start, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, you, you started a business, and you started it around something you love, around pets and animals. Talk about how you started your business and why.
3: Well, people seem to laugh when I say this, but the honest truth is I've been doing products for over 30 years. I started with children's products because I'm cheap and lazy and I had a lot of kids, so I just hate wasting time and money. So the products that I do were when I need them, And it's really, the products will be worth the money, and they will solve a problem. So it will save you time and money.
0: Yeah, you're figuring if I got the problem, somebody else out there has got the problem, too.
3: Absolutely.
0: Well, in 2000, your dog, Saber, had a problem. Talk about the problem and the problem you solved.
3: He had uh, part of his tail removed. And it just was, you know, he was in the traditional plastic cone. And, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it. If the owner will leave a plastic cone on, eventually the dog will heal as miserable as they are and the owner is. But I, like 99% of the, of the owners of a pet took the plastic off and I had to go back the next day to the vet to get restitched, saber to get restitched. So I realized there had to be something better and something I would leave on. So I just made the first one out of an exercise mat, and it was developed from there.
0: And the exercise mat, then, how does that turn into a product, Linda? Because that's just so interesting. You're solving it yourself. Did people see it and say, wow, that's something? Or did something click in your mind where you went, hey, there's something to this. I think I I can solve some other people's problems.
3: I realized how it worked so much better and he slept and he was more relaxed. So from the exercise mat, I started developing which, which materials would be best, what things are the most comfortable, how stiff it has to be, how long it needs to be, the sizing. So it started from that and when I realized that it did work, but I needed to make it a little better, I worked with vets and their opinions and, you know, other people and from that comfy cone was developed.
0: And now this this comes in all different sizes for all different necks. I mean, you're talking from the smallest pets to the biggest pet. What kind of a dog was Sabre, by the way?
3: He was a great Pyrenees, very large, 180 pounds. So um, we need to make a very big one.
0: And do cats need these cones, too? Do cats do this as much as dogs? Will they st- sort of eat their own uh, stitches as well?
3: Yes. And there, you know it's also that you can put it over feeding tubes, IV lines, you can even turn it backwards but you know when i was saying before about everything was a development and just from realizing that it did work we started uh hearing from doctors that did a lot of eye surgery so we realized that it needed to be something that was a little tougher at times. And because of that, I put removable plastic stays in three pockets in the cone. So I did it for two reasons. One, that they're removable, so if you're with your pet and you're supervising, you can take them out and fold it back, fold the comfy cone back. But if you're not with them or if it's an eye surgery where you can't take a chance of anything happening to the stitches because the pet could lose an eye, then you leave the stays in. So I I kind of meshed together the plastic and the soft. But also because I realized, you know, doing things as a pet owner, I also realized that I had to make something that pet owners would leave on because they felt their pets were more comfortable
0: yep and and this comfort is the thing that matters. I remember my dog just how much he hated that cone, and it wasn 't just that it embarrassed him. I think he saw all the other dogs look at him and got <laughs> got self conscious But you could tell that it was really irritating his neck, and yep. it was just yep. so hard uh, so so the movie up by the way, uh, which came out in two thousand and nine the The recovery cone got a really bad rep. If you remember Alpha forced yeah. Doug to wear that cone as punishment, and I thought. That just really hurts. What a mean son-of-a-gun Alpha was. Talk about that, because, you know, in the end, do you think the dogs know? Do you think
3: they know? I don't See, that's why I said at the beginning that, you know, if you leave any device on a dog, a plastic cone, let's say, eventually they will heal. But as humans, we project, and we want pets are family now. It's not just a matter of having a, a pet for protection or other needs. They are a family, and you want your family to be more comfortable. And since we have the ability to create things, why not do that? And also we realize with working with vets, you know, a misconception that, Uh, pets need to see their peripheral vision, and which really is not true. They don't have the same peripheral vision as humans. And what happens is if they can see through something, they, everything's distorted a little. So they think, what am I seeing? What's that shadow? What do I do? I'm in a device. How do I protect myself? But I realize that dogs realize things just like horses, like blinders on a horse. If they don't see something, it doesn't exist for them. So they relax, and they're not worried about what's around them.
0: Yeah, I know. We have, a, we have a dog that just so overreacts to everything. We have a lot of windows and arrows. We were thinking of getting the cone just so she could relax because she's just so hyper. And I know about blinders and horses. We love horses yeah. on this show. And it, I think it would actually help her. But I think she would spend all of her life trying to get out of that cone all day long. Uh, it's very, very tough. Tell me this. So you, you make the product. How do you market the product, Linda? I mean, obviously, you're trying to solve your own problem, but you're a business person. What's the next step? How do you get this product to market? How does it get to the attention of the Wall Street Journal? It's remarkable.
3: Thank you. Um, Well, we went to a trade show uh, right after I had gotten the product manufactured, and um, it just did very well. And it really, I have to thank uh, all our customers It's done very well, and they're the reason that we have been successful. But we also uh, will listen to pros and cons in the company. I love creating problems, uh, but i I creating products. Is this going to be okay because I can barely talk?
0: No, don't worry about (laughs) it. Just start over. Just say I love creating products. You're you're sounding fine. Don't worry about (laughs) it.
3: Okay. I love creating products. I lost my train of thought there. Um, what was your question again?
0: Well, it was just, you know, get, bringing it to market. And you were oh, getting right okay. to the area of, you know, you love creating products, but you listen to, you like to listen to cons. all sides.
3: Right. Yeah. And then we realized that there are like dachshunds that have little necks, but long snouts. So I started creating sizes that would work for that. I would take a small neck size with a medium-sized uh, length. And I did the same for, like, greyhounds and other types of pets. I really do try to correct things that don't work and to add things that will work. And, you know, believe it or not, the next product that I did, the Comfy Wrap, is actually the Comfy Cone for the body because as much as I love the Comfy Cone, I made it, I hate putting a cone on a dog, even the comfy cone, if they don't need it. So the comfy wrap is the comfy cone for the body, meaning it's the same material. It goes around the torso, up through the chest, over the back. So this way, if the pet has allergies or if it's a hot spot on the side, one of our pets, Seamus, who's a very large perinean mastiff, he always gets hot spots on his side. So he doesn't need the shape the cone shape to heal. He just needed that part covered. So for that I used the comfy wrap and that's how that was that's how that one started for Seamus.
0: I'm gonna have but to I, get a, I'm gonna have to get a comfy wrap for my cousin's German Shepherd Luger, who is always getting hot spots on the left side of his body yes. and he just digs into himself and it's so scary, Linda. I mean you can see him actually scratching himself and hurting himself. Um, so I need one of those comfy wraps from you, Linda. How many? How much sales do you have at all four parts? What 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 kind of business has this turned into for you, Linda, if you don't mind sharing?
3: No, it's been, thank God, a very successful business. And we are international now. We're in about 12 countries. And um, I will always be creating new products. And we have two other products that we have, which are, not I would say, the comfy cone and the comfy wrap. Are our, our heart and soul, but we have other prop, products like the wipe it and the chill collar that we also make. That also serve a purpose. So anything we make will serve a purpose, and will be creative, and will be our own design. I do patent our designs, and they are unique. And um, you know, we work we work like that.
0: Well, Linda, thanks for all you do for all the animal owners out there, and particularly the animals out there. The comfy cone, the comfy wrap, white bits, chill collars. Go to allfourpaws.com. That's allfourpaws.com. We love small business stories. We love entrepreneurs, and we love our pets. And this merges all of the above. Linda, thanks so much for all you do, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our On Leadership series. And our own Alex Cortez brings us an interview with a giant in a field the public doesn't hear from very often, and that's private equity, the form of investing where you buy a portion and often the controlling portion of a company, hoping to make it stronger and then sell it to someone else, and helping the economy and helping generate a return for investors. Some of the investors in private equity funds are already wealthy, but many of them aren't. Many of them are pension funds and university endowments. And the success of the private equity firm directly impacts the retirement pensions of folks like firemen and teachers and how much a university can dedicate towards scholarships. This private equity giant whose story we're bringing you today is John Canning. And he's the founder of Madison Dearborn Partners, which has invested over $20 billion into the economy and has achieved 20% rates of return for these investors in allowing John to embrace Another title, Philanthropist. Let's take a listen to Alex's interview with John.
6: John, where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, Bayport, Long Island. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a small town, right Yeah. halfway out on the island. You know, 77 kids in my graduating class. Oh, my, wow. My father was the only doctor in town. It was a mid- middle-class community. Sometimes he'd get paid uh, in clams or uh, <laughs> corn, uh, or fish. And sometimes <laughs> he didn't get paid. You know, he did, used to do uh, house calls. Yeah. and Then nobody does house calls anymore. So it was a it was uh, it was a real middle class. It wasn't poor, but it was real real middle class. Yeah,
7: man. Being a town doctor, or a town lawyer would be fascinating. All the various kind of cases you Yeah, to he, I think
6: he saw a lot of stuff I didn't hear about. Yeah. What would you say? Did the community
7: in particular shape you in any way? I want to ask you about your father after that. But how did the community and that environment
6: shape you? You know, some of the people I went to school with are still my best friends. Uh, I, see, I see a couple of them every year, at least once or twice. Uh, so, it was a, you know, I have just terrific memories of, of, of my, you know, growing up in, in, in uh, on Long Island yeah. Bayport.
7: And what kind of jobs do those friends that you see every year have now?
6: <laughs> one guy runs a grocery store. Uh, another guy, ironically, runs a deli. Um, one, one of them uh, retired at uh, um, uh, one of the big phone companies uh, about 15 years ago. You know, I'm 72. Yeah. So uh, one of them's a teacher, was a teacher. He, he retired also.
7: I think that's a big testament to your character and who you are. I mean, can you talk about him? Mean, most people when they hear of private equity guys, they probably don't think he's, you know, he's hanging out with his childhood best friends. He's, you know, dining at the most elite restaurants in Chicago. And but no, talk, I... talk about that a little bit. Uh, well,
6: you know, uh, I'll talk about the one fellow who, I, I used to work at the grocery store he now runs because his dad owned it. It was out on Fire Island, which is, you know, runs the length yeah. of Long Island. Um, so he was the uh, uh, best man in my first wedding. Uh, he and I get together at least four times a year. Uh, and so his father then died and he, he inherited the store. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't even think he owns a suit. Uh but but we 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 will if we see each other in in six months, we can sit down and talk for hours as if we'd been together the the entire full six months. Yeah. Uh you know, we, we just have just such a connect. Yeah, do you find it very cathartic to kinda of get out of the office I love and, and spend yeah. time? I love it. He comes in the, I have a condo here and we sit out on the balcony, have cigars and uh I go out we'll go out to lunch together. And then we'll head to a ball game or do something for a series of days. I don't have to wear a suit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can just wear jeans and a, and a, a sweatshirt that has uh, you know go socks on it or whatever. So, oh, th- you know. um, so tell me about your dad. Uh, you know, I, I think the the thing that I, I remember most most is is his work ethic. And I, I, I remember saying, "I'm never going to be a doctor. This is too tough." Because uh, he 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 was. Um, you know he not only did he have op- office hours but he would he would he'd be take off at 2 in the morning if somebody called you know he let, he had them you know he, everybody had his phone number he he didn't like have a hidden phone number so he couldn't be bothered and i think his work ethic was really you know it, there's only one way you learn and that's by observing somebody do what you know people can preach to you but the people you know when you have a mentor it's really what the mentor does, not what the mentor says, and that—that's the way my father was. John, tell me about your first job. We asked everyone we interview about
7: their very first job as a kid and what they learned from it. Was there a funny experience?
6: Well, yeah. My first job was as a counselor at a Jewish <laughs> day camp, and were you Jewish? No. And they had—they had a—they had were looking for somebody who could teach horseback riding, so I said. I'm your man. It was 300 bucks for the summer. I had never been on a horse. I didn't know anything about horses. I had to figure out how to saddle a horse. And the first time I did it, the kid almost fell off because the saddle wasn't tight enough. So luckily, the kind of horse riding was, you know, you go in a circle, and I led the horse around. But I had no clue uh, uh, about a wh- anything you do with horses. and so I, But I pulled it off. And it was three hundred bucks said, for the horse. You whole said circle.
7: I'm your man, and you didn't know anything about horses. Uh, not a
6: thing, not a thing. <laughs> hadn't even I probably hadn't even been on a horse or touched one. They didn't ask you. Do you know anything about horses? <laughs> they <laughs> they just needed a guy, and they, you were the
7: guy
2: who was just, there. They
6: they, they, I, they must have needed him fairly badly. <laughs> yeah. And they, I think they didn't think it was a it was a high skill level needed since the kids weren't exactly doing show show horse riding or jumping, you know hurdles. They were. It was just lead a little seven year old around in a circle. Yeah. So I caught on pretty quick. I'm sure you were glad it wasn't today. I mean, if the very first
7: time the kid fell off, it was your fault, you might, might have been be sued, sued Sure, that that's, did come to mind, but
6: uh, that you was must, my first job.
7: You must have been paid something like 50 cents an hour,
6: at 300 dollars for the summer. At most, <laughs> it was the whole summer. And I thought, man, I, this is this living, 300 bucks. What am I going to do with all that money? Do you remember any lessons learned from it? Uh, even a lot of
7: people when we talk to say, I knew I didn't want to do that job. I wanted to do something else and it, it made me work harder to do something else. Well, uh, that,
6: was, that was it. I mean, the time didn't, my watch never moved. I don't even know if I had a watch, but the time never moved. You know, it was, it was the longest day of my, you know, and it only went till 3. But it was it was a long, long day and I had to bring my own lunch. They didn't even serve you lunch. Uh, so I, did, I knew I, did, I just didn't want to do something that had no challenge to it at all, uh, and that was it. And now, do you feel like your time goes by and you you don't have enough of it? Well, now, I don't have enough of it. That's for sure. Yeah, which is the ideal situation to be in. It. Yeah, you, no, you, it's you, you a, you there's nothing boring for... about about uh, the private equity
0: business. No, indeed. And when we come back, more with Alex's interview with John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. This is our On Leadership series. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's interview with John Kenning, who wanted to become a professional baseball player of all things, and when that didn't work out, somehow came to lead investment firms, and this is our On Leadership series, and again, this is Our American Stories.
7: Let's talk for a while about what's enabled you to be a philanthropist, private equity. How did you get into it in the first place? I'm sure not many kids grow up thinking, oh, I want to be in
6: private equity. Right. Well, I went to law school, as I mentioned. I got a job at the First National Bank of Chicago in 1969 in their law department, their internal law department. And um, when I got there, the law had just been changed to allow banks to get into some equity investing. So I was a new guy in a big law department, and they said, why don't you learn this? So uh, I then was assigned to do all the work for what was going to be First Chicago Venture Capital, which was run by a, a new guy just came in. Named Stan Golder. And he turned out, to, so he, I, re, I was doing most of the legal work for them from 1969 to 1980. He then left to form Golder Toma Cressy. So I took over for him in 1980. Uh, he recommended me, I took over the venture group. Then we stayed in, in the venture group till 92 when we then, with the, with the support of the bank, spun out and formed Madison Dearborn Partners. Were you nervous when you became the head of the private equity fund, especially as a lawyer? I'm sure you were in on the deals and learned through that process, but you still had to be nerve wracking getting in the seat. Well, what I said, you know, I I remember I almost didn't do it. I I said, you know, I don't know anything about. I didn't go to business school; I went to law school. I don't know anything about business. And he said, no, "Do it. This is Stan Golder. You'll, you'll, you know, you've been drafting agreements. You've been, you've been reading financial statements because you have to do that to, to." to put covenants and agreements you know more than you think you know of course that advice
7: is easier said than done but john canning did do it and is still doing it how i next explored with john how he actually went about leading these firms what is the process like to get to the point of of making an investment and how strong of a hand do you have in it and, and how much of a democracy or a benevolent dictatorship
6: is it on the deal side it's a democracy because um we all sit in a meeting, and this is this is since 1980, we all sit in a room, we're, we're organized by, by industry teams, and the, the, there's a democratic process for determining what deals we do and don't do, and, and everybody's got an incentive to make sure the best deals get done, because compensation isn't based on the uh, number of deals you get done, that's a dangerous incentive. And you're, so when a team is, is proposing a deal and it goes through lots of iterations before it's done, because various amounts of information become available as due diligence is done, the rest of the group is, acts as a devil's advocate, and everybody's invests in the fund has a significant investment in the fu- our fund at the time. So uh, everybody has an incentive to make sure the best deals get done. I've heard you talk about that. Everything has to be said in that room. There's no talk, right. talking in the
7: hallways. Can you talk about that some more?
6: Well, the, again, this this didn't happen overnight. That this process was uh, successful, and and so, you know, it, it 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 took years and years and years. First of all, having every getting you know getting the right team in place, having and I think one of the most important things is mutual trust and mutual respect. So having everybody who actually respects their partners so that 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 you can have that actually this dialogue without taking it personally, that's very important. But we also we, we've, we have a rule, as you stated, that, that if it's not said in here, it better not be said in the hallway because your job is to, if you've got doubts about a deal, your job is to bring them up in here. We'll address them, but if you're going to go out in the hallway and, and, and go in your buddy's office and say, you know, that I, 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 I can't stand that deal. That's not going to fly. You're not going to last here long.
7: No matter how judiciously you hire, you're inevitably going to have some cultural terrorists get through. As Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, put it to me, and I just love that phrase, cultural terrorists, but it is so true. And so how has John handled this challenge? Of addressing these cultural terrorists who don't embrace their culture of forthrightness and mutual respect let's return to our conversation have you had to get rid of some
6: bad apples in the process we've here here's what yeah yes and and i wouldn't call them bad apples i'd call them people who were extremely smart and extremely capable but didn't have our culture and would, would would therefore undermine the culture and these are some senior you guys have been here for some time, but uh we we've had to we've had to take some of those uh, we have had to take some action like that uh, um, because the, the toughest guy to get rid of is a guy that's clearly capable and of performing and is very smart and uh you know would be very good at this business in a different environment what um what's the greatest thing you do to cultivate <coughs> that
7: culture? Well, one of the
6: things was we we and we got away from it for a short period of time, and we and we uh, we lost a little control over our culture, and we had to get rid of some people. One is that we had it. We used to have a rule. And we now have it that everybody of the managing partners, that would be the first fourteen guys, and now it's probably twenty people, has to sign off before we hire somebody.
7: As John hinted at there, for a time, they let each division hire its own folks, and it didn't work out well. There really is safety in numbers, in a broader group of folks reviewing a potential hire. And many leaders like John have also come to the position that if a team is going to work closely together, the team collectively should have a say about who they're going to be working closely with. And that sure sounds like common sense, but in practice, it is quite uncommon Another crucial part of cultivating a successful team is cultivating the next generation, the next generation of employees, and hopefully the next generation of managing directors. John's firm, Madison Dearborn, is very intentional about all of this, especially through their associates program. Where these young folks are highly involved, working with partners to explore investment opportunities, traveling with them, and even having a direct role in their Monday investment meetings. The topic John and I next explored. One of the things I love is how you guys involve your associates in those Monday meetings. Can you talk about that? And I'm sure that's a great inculcation of, of both the culture and leadership and just learning how the business works. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh,
6: the associates sit on the, uh, you know, we have a very long uh, table that holds about 30 some odd people and the associates sit kind of in the bleachers not only do the associates hear how the deliberation goes and, and and get all the presentation materials but they usually whoever the way the associates gets assigned to teams an associate is always presenting and it's an ama- it's a I mean if instead of the managing director who's who's leading on that particular Well the managing director you know? will set up the presentation and will be there you know supporting answering questions and, but the uh, the aso- associates get a real opportunity to present. Got to be nerve wracking. It's, you know, that's a pretty intimidating environment because you got guys, the managing directors average over 20 years here. There's six of them, six of us who've been here since the beginning, 92, you know, these guys are the deal head team. I mean, they're not shy about picking apart an investment thesis. Whew,
7: to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. What an opportunity for these young associates they're not just learning, but they also have a promising career path before them. And they're earning a ton of money. Get this, in the private equity industry, the average starting pay is around ninety to $125,000 as an associate. I was telling my father, who's a managing director at a finance firm, About these compensation levels that I was reading about, and boy, it got him going. He went on a tear, don't worry, it was a well-justified one, about the shameless hypocrisy of the folks in the media and in politics who just love to malign this clearly generous financial industry as greedy. You know, you've heard that term thrown around by them before. But when it comes to their very own actions, guess how they treat their own young employees? Miserably. Did you know that the starting salaries in the media and in politics are one half to one third of these private equity rates and if you intern you often don't get paid at all for your work which leaves the whole internship experience to mostly wealthy kids who can afford not to get paid. Meanwhile, my father pays $40,000 a year for his college interns. $40,000 for interns who aren't even full-time. They are going to school. And my father is not unique. This is not about him. This is the financial industry operating in the real world. Now that's a great untold story in this country, folks. That it's the financial industry who will provide anyone from all economic stripes... A step onto the ladder of opportunity, while the media and the politicians pull up the ladder for poor kids. Rich kids only apply.
0: And when we come back, more from Alex, more from John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. After these messages, this is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories, this is our special On Leadership series. This our American Stories, and we return to our On Leadership series and Alex's interview with John Kenning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. And before we continue, a couple of observations. Early on in this interview, John talked about the influence of his father and talked about his father's work habits and that he learned from what his father did, not what his father said. And we keep hearing that time and again, you know, in our short segment on Nick Saban, Coach Saban talked about his dad and talked about the work ethic his dad had and the work ethic his dad instilled in him. And over and over again, we learned about the importance of fathers, and not only that they're there, but that they teach kids their values and pass them on. The other thing that was fascinating was Alex's short talk on the pay structures of the finance community, as opposed to, let's say, the media. And in my experience in the media, it's not only that they pay so poorly, uh, young people there, but they treat young people so poorly. They make them fetch stuff, and they're almost little servant classes, while the media superstars get paid tens of millions of dollars and then regale and rip apart uh, members of the financial community who earn their wealth and earn their keep. But back to the story, Alex's story, Alex's sit-down with John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners. This is Our American Stories on Leadership.
7: I next asked John... About the heavy responsibility of having other people's money in his hands. Do you feel the weight of it, knowing the impact that you can have, no. positive or negative?
6: I feel the weight of it because I got a big investment in the fund myself. <laughs> That's why I want to feel the weight <laughs> of it.
7: And after this healthy laugh, we then took a look at the big picture. Tell us the overall story of private equity. I think when most people obviously hear the term, they think, you know, poorly upon it, and Mitt Romney's, you know, raised it and certainly helped that and floating debts on companies and taking away the profits, and firing people, and taking the management fees. I mean, talk about that. What's what's your response to that? And do you blame the industry for not telling its story
6: enough? You know, in our situation, almost every investment we make, we do pure growth investing, and we do buyouts, and almost every investment we make has a ha, has a growth strategy. And so, and the, and the industry is much the same. Uh, you don't you don't create value. If, you, if you're going to buy something, just run it and not grow it and try and sell it again. So where's, where's, the, where's, the, where's the you know Why is anybody going to pay more than you bought it for?
7: A favorite example of John's of how they were able to strengthen a company, strengthen the world, and strengthen the finances of their investors is their buying of Sage Products, which is a local company and one that invented six major products for preventing injury and infection in hospitals. Sage's yearly revenue was a strong $300 million, but their products were only in the U.S., even though their products were just as relevant internationally. Madison Dearborn saw an opportunity, and they bought them for $1.5 billion, introduced their products internationally, and increased their sales by $200 million in just two to three years. The medical device company Stryker then bought Sage from them for $2.75 billion. It was a win for everybody, for patients internationally, for the founders and employees of Sage, for Madison Dearborn and their investors that include pensioners like teachers and university endowments, for Stryker, and for the beneficiaries of all of their philanthropy. Take Vince Foglia, the co-founder of Sage. He's given millions to my own alma mater, St. Ignatius. One of the best high schools in Chicago, and it's a very unique elite high school in that it provides over a quarter of its students significant financial assistance, averaging $8,000 a student, providing low-income kids an educational opportunity they otherwise couldn't dream of, and creating a truly diverse school community. And for John Canning's part, his philanthropy is also focused on education, and for him it all started with a specific moment when a young boy named Eric Morse was thrown off a building, the Ida B. Wells housing project. He was only five years old.
6: The story was, uh, he, he wanted, they, they wanted him to steal, but he wouldn't do it, and so the gang members threw him off the building. When that happened, my wife said, we ought to find the family. Because they looked like a good family, so she went. She tracked it down through the local police department. They said, "Go to Holy Angels Convent. Those nuns there know the family." Holy Angels School was next to the convent, and the nuns uh, taught at the school. Mm -hmm. So we contacted them, and they said, "We'll arrange a visit." So we came down there. It's like in 40th and uh, Martin Luther King Drive. Tough area back then because Vita B Wells was right next to it. It's now gone, and it's a, it's actually a gentrifying area. But um, when we arrived, they said, "Look, w- w- we this family isn't as 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 built. They're they they're not interested in meeting, and they've got drugs in the family. It's it's not a great family. But we have an idea for you. We have seven children that that uh, can't pay the tuition, but want to continue to go to Holy Angels. Would you consider supporting And We said. We'd be glad to, and then we thought that was at the end of it. So a couple of weeks later, we get a call, and they say, look, the kids and their parent or guardian want to meet you. They want to have a Valentine's Day party for you. So we went to the convent. We met the seven kids and their grandmother, parents, and uh, and we then were kind of hooked.
7: One of these original seven scholarship recipients And one that john was especially close with was shot and killed on the streets of chicago he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time since john got hooked he and his wife have created a program where every year they provide scholarships to 100 disadvantaged children to attend catholic schools in the city it's through the big shoulders fund where he's been the co-chairman since 2004 and has helped raise over $250 million for more scholarships and operational support to keep this effective but under-resourced asset called Catholic Schools alive. 92% of Big Shoulders' scholarship recipients attend college. And contrast this with Chicago public schools who persistently fail their students. Only 40% of them will attend some form of college. And John's involvement in all this is much more surprising than you might expect. Talk about when you started to see Catholic schools as an asset. I mean, you're not Catholic, I believe. So, yeah, talk about, and I think this is an unknown story. I mean, both about you and the Wall Street Journal did a fascinating article about New York, about how a bunch of Jewish and atheist
6: philanthropists there as well are big supporters of Catholic schools there. And it's the same here, by the way, with some of our biggest donors to big shoulders are Jewish. Uh, and and the cardinal, Cardinal George, used to, you know, I hope jokingly call me the heathen, but uh, you know what? What I learned was, and a, my wife is Catholic, but well, and did go to Catholic schools. But when I what I learned when I first got involved with the Holy Angels, which was in a really rugged neighborhood, and back then they had 1,200 students. Uh, now they probably have 200 because of the changing uh, demographics. But what I learned was. Uh, that this was the safest place, safe, structured, value-based education. It wasn't the religious part of it. And, and you know, no metal detectors. When you go to the hallways, you could hear a pin drop when the classes change. They're wearing uniforms. And, and the alternative was really schools that were not safe, that were not structured.
7: The alternative was really no alternative at all.
0: This is Our American Stories, and we continue in our final segment with our On Leadership series. John Canning, the founder of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, and our field correspondent and producer Alex Cortez. This is our On Leadership series, and my goodness, leadership in the workplace, leadership in the community. And to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And if you have a leader in your community, someone who's done extraordinary things in business, in the community, and the social capital side, and we know what that means, that's our churches, that's our organizations, that's our school boards, our city council, go to ouramericannetwork.org and post us a message and we'll follow it down. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages. This is Our American Story. American stories. And we're back with the final portion of Alex's conversation with John Canning, the founder of private equity firm, Madison Dearborn Partners. And this is our on leadership segment. And we do these regularly. And these are some of our favorite and most loved segments. Our favorite so far still John Wooden. And we did two hours on Coach Wooden, because what a life and what a leader, what a coach and what a husband we learned. And when we left off, Alex and John were talking about John's significant support of Catholic schools. And by the way, we learned John wasn't a Catholic, but gave to these schools because they literally save the futures of disadvantaged children and ingrain virtues and values in them that last a lifetime. Let's now continue with their conversation.
7: John then spoke about another advantage that Catholic schools have. They aren't free. (laughs) You heard that right. That's an advantage that they're not free. They cost families a lot, and so it means a lot to them.
6: This is very important, I think. With parents or support systems that had to make a sacrifice to send the kid to the school. So you've got somebody who's not watching cable TV, and that means that somebody's going to make sure you go to school and you do your homework. And as importantly, he's with other people because they come from the same environment. So it could be just a mother, and a lot, uh, You know, interestingly, in the in the African American, and all almost all my kids are African American or Latino. African American in the inner city, much more mothers and grandmothers. Latinos, most mostly dual parents, but sometimes some real abuse going on in the in the in the household. Uh, so you know, they they come from tough tough environments. But there is some support system at home, and that's very important to, to in in uh, in why they're so successful. You guys are doing your best, but long term, are you concerned about just the environment in Illinois in
7: general? Are you swimming against a tide that eventually is going to come too big in terms of you know high taxes, the underfunded pensions, people and businesses fleeing the states? I mean, long term, is this all
6: doomed? And, and why should people you know care about public policy? I, I think. Um, the last, the the last people to leave town will be the kids who are in, <laughs> in these, in these schools. They don't have those options, and their parent, their parents don't. So, so that the uh, you know the the bigger concern to me is, um, you know the the conditions these kids ha are, are, are live around around, you know, the the schools we're talking about, are where all the 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 violence is occurring, and you know. People say, "Well, that's great. The kid does, isn't a gang member." It, it's impossible not to be a gang—not necessarily an active gang member—but to have uh, some av- involvement with a gang because you, you're not going to get to school. You know, that's a—it's almost a, a protective structure. So, to, it's naive to say, "You know, let's keep all the kids." You know. Completely separated from these gangs, it, it just—it's not. If a kid's going to walk home from school, he's got no choice. Uh, that's what—that concerns me more than anything. Now I, these kids get into high school, they get out of the neighborhood, they go get jobs. You know, they don't—they don't. That doesn't stop them from. They're just pragmatic. Uh, and uh, every every kid in the, in, the, in in our schools probably knows somebody who's been shot. Uh, I've, I've been I've been in the classrooms and I, I've asked how many how many people know somebody who's been shot and all the hands go up, you know. So that's living in that environment. I've out, out where I live. If you ask that question, nobody raises their hand, and uh, you know it's hard to relate to that.
7: It is, and it's hard to learn when these kids have so much noise going on in the background. But these Catholic schools are doing it. John pointed out that there are about twenty five thousand students attending Catholic schools in Chicago about 450,000 attending traditional public schools, and about 40,000 attending charter schools. And he's concluded that Catholic schools could take on another 25,000 students, but that's it. They can't be the sole solution. Broader reform of public schools has to happen. In closing out this conversation for our On Leadership series, we spoke about a couple lighter subjects, such as John almost buying the Chicago Cubs. What I found fascinating about that is some of your quotes. Talk about how in hindsight you wouldn't have liked it all the limelight. Yeah. Um, and all the attention. I think you told the story of, you know, going to your country club and people treating you better. Well can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, little?
6: well I mean so when I put together a syndicate we had a great ownership group, Andy McKenna, uh, Pat Ryan, Michael Sachs, Michael Farrow. We had a lot of a couple of my partners here. We had a we had a lot of people that were, you know Well known, weren't doing it for 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 to make a return, but we're really doing it because it was it's a you know it's a city institution and you know the the Cubs are the Cubs and that'd be so we uh, so when when it became public that I was leading the syndicate you know got in all the newspapers and whatnot and I'd been a member of my country club for. Fifteen years, and, and I probably knew six people. You know, I don't play in any of the golf tournaments. I I, I go up there quite a bit for, for for dinner, and I go play golf with my kids and my wife. But I never got involved in any of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, I, I see people. You po- know, I mean, I'd be at dinner, and people I could see people. You know, pointing and, and whispering to something. And all of a sudden, people I didn't even know were asking me to play golf, which I hate to do with with people that are, that are any good at the sport. So I, I, you know, I, I I could tell what was going on. You know, it was it was, uh, you know, it was just because the, I was the guy making the bid for the Cubs. If
7: they only knew John was such a great guy as I found out in our time together, maybe they would have asked him to play golf sooner, or maybe not. Fame is one weird animal, and although John didn't get the Cubs, he does own an interest in six minor league baseball teams and twelve percent of the Milwaukee Brewers. And on the topic of baseball ownership, John shared something fascinating with me, in case you ever find yourself in a position to buy a portion of a professional team. One can only dare to dream, but hey, it happened to John, a kid who started out by handling horses at a Jewish summer camp. (laughs) Anyways, he told me that if the entirety of the Milwaukee Brewers were sold to another owner, he'd receive about $90 million in return for his 12% interest. But, if you only bought a minority interest such as his, it would only cost about 45 million. so there's a significant discount into buying into minority interests of teams that could one day double your money if the entirety of the team's ownership is sold. So just file that away in the back of your mind and now, my final question for baseball owner, philanthropist, and investor John canning. Uh-huh. What about you, John, what people would people be surprised about? It could be a quirk, a passion, or a hobby? Uh <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think well it depends on where where you go. I think uh if there were people that graduated from me with college, they'd be surprised that I'm that I'm here, you know, doing this well. And same with law school, because I was not much of a student at law school. So that would be uh, that was kind of a joke when I made a contribution to law school. I named the place, placement af- office after me. Well, I, ha- I had the hardest time getting a job, so a couple of people that were my peers got the joke and, and <laughs> called me up to, to tell me they got the joke. But um, you know, I think um, probably people that then know me that didn't weren't close to me would be. So Surprised that you know I I've lived in the same house for you know since 1984. Wow! And it's you know it's not a spectacular house. My kids all have nicer houses. You know the only thing that I do really lavishly is I I fly privately. Uh, but outside of that, I'm you know a pretty modest. Why do you do that? Why haven't you Why haven't you bought a nicer house? You know I, I don't need it. You know I just don't need it. It's a big house, but it's it's nothing special. I mean it's in, and it's got. Not, Two acres but it's it's the same old house I've had and I, I just I don't need it you realize it doesn't make you happier no, no, exactly. and- You're right yeah I mean I p- p- flying private makes me happy <laughs> that that's for sure and I have a nice car too but outside of that not much
0: and there you go great job on that Alex and that last part tells you a lot about John doesn't it I mean he's living in the same house well, since almost about the time he was starting to make real money.
7: He joked that his kids all had nicer houses than he does.
0: <laughs> well, good for him. And what did you learn from John? What did you expect going in? And what did, you, what did you learn coming out, Alex?
7: I mean, you expect to be intimidated by these private equity guys. I mean, these guys are titans. But, you know, after my spending that week in Chicago interviewing a lot of these, these big titans and civic leaders, what I really walk away from is they're really just gentlemen. You know, and I wish I was the gentleman that they were, you know, and it's a great example for me to be able to see this, you know, how gracious they are with their time and and how loving and you can just hear it in their voice too, how much they genuinely care about, you know, you and other people. And I just think it's not what people would expect, you know, when they think about the finance industry.
0: Well, and that's what we learn a lot, and especially the team building. The fact that he lets his employees, all of them, hire each other is not only remarkable, I actually think it's common sense. I have the same theory here. And I've been taught by some pretty smart guys, let your team make these decisions, because in the end, they're responsible for the organization. Thanks so much for this report, Alex. And as always, our On Leadership series is just just always dazzling to find out where folks come from, what they do, how they do it. And humility seems to be a part of all of it and the people. These people really rely on their people. We learn learn that from the master, from John Wooden himself, that it's about the people. And bringing the best out of them, they're bringing the best out of them, and leading by example. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to see and listen to all that we do. On leadership, John Kenning, the founder of the private equity firm, Madison Dearborn Partners, and what an impact he's having on the people in his community in the great city of Chicago.